to BIV Today, the daily business news podcast from Business in Vancouver newspaper and BIV.com. I'm Tyler Orton. Later on this month, the first ever Indigenous Women's Leadership Summit will unfold in central Canada. The conference is a brainchild of BC-based Laurie Sterrett. She joins us a little later on this hour. But first, BC's labor force is set to transform dramatically in the coming years through advances in automation. So how adept will workers be at weathering significant upheaval? David Williams from the Business Council of British Columbia has been examining the potential impacts within the province in a new risk assessment that's coming up next. Our next guest has just released a risk assessment on the impacts of automation on the BC workforce. I don't know, some might find the results a little chilling, but there's some very intriguing stuff going on here. And joining us today, it is David Williams, he's Vice President Policy at the Business Council of British Columbia. David, thanks for joining us on the show. Thanks, Tyler. Great to be with you. So if we're talking automation, I don't know, people might have different ideas in their mind, but for you, as you approach this risk assessment, what in your mind is the way that you define automation here? Well, we know that there's a lot of new technologies uh, coming down the pipeline, Uh, cloud computing, internet of things, big data, AI, we've all heard these terms before. And, you know, these technologies are going to be automating certain sorts of tasks that we traditionally associate with humans. Uh, And so what we were asking was, what does this mean for the labor market? What is it specifically? What does this mean for the British Columbia labour market, given the types of jobs and the types of tasks that workers in BC do? Well, tell me a little bit about this because you did uh, ascertain here that maybe in British Columbia we're a little bit more at risk than the rest of Canada, not by a huge margin. But tell us a little bit about what's going on in British Columbia that's a little bit different from the rest of Canada. Well, we have we have more jobs that are in uh, highly automatable occupations. We have a lot of jobs in, say, sales and service. We have a lot of jobs in business, uh, finance, administration, a lot of jobs in trades and, and operations. And those types of jobs uh, tend to have tasks that can be performed by some of these emerging technologies. Uh, and so they're they're at risk of being automated over the next 10 to 20 years. Uh, we tend to have more than than Canada in those categories. And even among op- occupational groups, we have, uh, uh, even within those categories, the sorts of jobs that we do in BC tend to lend themselves to, to automation. So the thing that jumped out to me here is that it said that there's a high probability that 42% of jobs or workers or in occupations uh, that could be automated in 10 to 20 years. I'm curious about that. Like, what does that mean moving forward with regards to the way that the labor force is going to have to adapt and change in your opinion? Well, that's right. It's going to adapt. That's really what we're getting at. These, these jobs aren't going, jobs aren't going to be destroyed because we're only considering one channel of, of impact here because technology is going to going to raise productivity, right? If we have more productivity, so that's more output per hour, uh, we're going to have more higher incomes. If we have higher incomes, we're going to want to buy more stuff. Um, if we want to buy more stuff, we're going to need to produce more. And to produce more, we're going to need more workers. So, you know, it's not uh, it's not only one channel of influence here, but this is this is what we wanted to look at. It's just the, just the automation perspective because the people who are in these sorts of jobs and the, and the firms that are employing workers in these sorts of occupations are going to face some adjustment costs. Uh, workers are going to need to, to reskill or to be retasked 
within their occupations. They may need to relocate uh, or um, they may face uh, slower wage growth because you know, there's always a, a computer-based technology that can come along and, and perform the task instead, right? So that, again, firms are gonna have that choice between employing uh, a worker or employing a, a technology to, to get the job done. Vic, uh, I say that British Columbia has always kind of been a victim of, of say, slow wage growth uh, at this point as well. Should this be concerning that it, it could further exasperate some of the issues that we're having here in this province with regards to the potential impact on the economy? Yeah, that's right. I mean, you know, we in British Columbia earn lower incomes than the rest of Canada. I think that's well known, as you, as you pointed out. Uh, and you know, there are some jobs that where we earn above the national average, and there are some occupations where we earn below the national average, and that washes out to about one to two thousand. You know, one one thousand to two thousand is a gap, right, with the yeah. rest of Canada. Uh, but when we look at this through the lens of automation, uh, what we find is that the the in the occupations where we have an income advantage relative to Canada. Well, guess what? We we actually are facing automation pressures there, so we may lose that advantage. And the occupations where we have an income disadvantage relative to the rest of Canada, uh, well, we get to keep those. Uh, okay. Those aren't, those aren't at risk. Um, so, you know, to be forewarned is to be forearmed. So we can start to think about what sort of adjustments that we need to make to prepare our, our, labor, market, our labor force um, for the, uh, the future demands of, uh, of production. Well, at this point, I mean, I, I think you talk to some people you know, just out in the streets and they hear automation and they think elimination of jobs. And I think you mentioned that earlier. It's not necessarily elimination of jobs. It's more of shifting what a lot of our jobs are. We, even if we're keeping the same job, if a lot of it is going to be automated, it also means that maybe we're going to be doing different tasks as the human individual, right? That's right. That's right. I mean, there are two ways that we've looked at the question. One is to look at whole occupations. Um, and again, that's based on the international literature. That's what, we've, that's what we're following here. Uh, and the other way is to look at it at, as tasks within occupations. There's actually very few uh, jobs where you know, a, a high percentage of the, the tasks could be automated, could be automated today. Uh, but for most of us, about 90% of the jobs in BC, we've got at least 10% of tasks that could be done by technology. Now, whether, whether it will be done by technology, I mean, that doesn't just depend on technical capability, mm -hmm. and which is the only thing we're looking at here. We're very clear about that in the paper. It also depends on uh, labor demand and supply. It depends on wages relative to the cost of capital. It depends on regulatory acceptance of the new technology, social acceptance of the new technology. I mean, just because you can have a pilotless aircraft doesn't mean that everybody's going to want to fly on it. I, I would not be passenger zero on that uh, particular <laughs> aircraft. Exactly. Yeah. That's right. So we could have driverless cars in the streets from a technical perspective, but is it going to be allowed from a regulatory perspective? Um, these are all challenges ahead of, ahead of us. Uh, there are also unforeseeable engineering breakthroughs. I mean, we only know today about what we think technologies are going to be capable of. Some of those engineering bottlenecks could be could be uh, broken through and uh, that op opens up new possibilities uh, for automation. Oh, I just think about maybe kind of the mobile revolution that we experienced over the last 10 years, where if you go back to say 2008, it wasn't like these were, you know, such, uh, you know, widespread devices. But nowadays, I mean, every single kid has like uh, a, a computer in their pocket, essentially. And it's just kind of like, how can we kind of really foresee that, uh, you know, but uh, the other thing that I'm curious about, because 
you do highlight here in the risk assessment that maybe a lot of the lower income uh, positions are more at risk. Tell us more what, you know, generally speaking, what are some of the positions that are at risk of being automated? Well, the positions that are at risk are those that, uh, in the broad, they tend to have routine, repetitive, rules-based tasks or, or basic social interactions. Um, and the tasks that are much harder to operate uh, to automate are those that in, tend to involve, you know, creative intelligence, problem solving, uh, originality, um, navigating complex social environments, you know, negotiation, persuasion building relationships with people. Those are the sorts of things that technologies are not very good at. So the types of jobs that are in the, in the former category, right, doing uh, uh, repetitive rule, rules-based tasks, you know, these are things like kitchen helpers, cashiers, uh, truck drivers, food and beverage servers, um, office support workers, administrative assistants, those sorts of things. But the types of jobs that technologies are not particularly uh, good at and yeah, are not yeah. going to be able to do. What should students be studying right now as they uh, take off for university? Well, again, you know, retail and wholesale trade managers, uh, nurses, elementary school teachers, kindergarten teachers. Yeah, kindergarten is not going to be taught by a robot anytime soon. Right. Uh, community service workers, um, you know, food service managers. You know, these are all sorts of things that, that technologies are just not in the foreseeable future going to be able to to do so you know people in those jobs are not going to be facing competition from from technologies people in the other those other categories they are going to be facing competition potentially from from technologies it's also stuff that i think we can witness you know right now you go to say a retail outlet or let's say you go to a grocery store and there's just a lot of those automated tellers that exist now that weren't there just five years ago. And that's obviously having impacts. Um, if you had the chance to, I don't know, uh, talk to maybe some policymakers at this point, do you have any general recommendations that you would make? Well, I mean, public and private institutions are very important in ensuring that nobody's left behind. Um, you know, as, you, as you've, you've uh, alluded to earlier, I mean, the types of positions that are going to face pressures from, uh, from technologies are those in, in low income, uh, lower income occupations. So there's going to be costs of reskilling, retasking, relocating, um, perhaps slower wage growth because of the competition. So those institutions, those public policy institutions are going to be very important. People are going to, you know, policymakers are going to need to look at um, you know, minimum wages, living wages. They're going to need to look at earned income tax credits. How does the tax system work? Does the tax system encourage innovation? Uh, you know, because at the same time as all of these trends are, are unfolding, you know, we want to be we want to be harnessing the the opportunities to increase productivity and increase incomes that's associated with technology. So we want to be alive to those. Um, you know, what's the best medicine for for innovation? And it's competition, right? Fear of survival, right? Can I survive as a business? If if you are facing a lot of competition, then you know you're going to want to. Uh, you know, innovate, you know, want to deploy new technologies, raise productivity, and that's good for living standards. That's good for, that's good for the economy as a whole. Uh, so, you know, it's a balance, I think, for policymakers between, you know, grabbing the opportunities to raise living standards through higher productivity, but also managing some of these adjustment, adjustment costs that are going to be felt unevenly across society. So, uh, David, I want you to be 100% honest. Uh, journalists, uh, are, are we at risk? Uh, and for only automation purposes, there's a whole lot going on in the journalism industry right now, but should I be fearful that a robot will take over my job? 
I think any, if you've got routine aspects of your job, uh, those aspects may be suspect or susceptible to automation. Mm-hmm. But you know, journalists also provide a lot of meaning to what's happening in life, what's happening in society, providing providing meaning to events. That's a very non-automatable skill. So uh, I think we'll always need journalists for that. What about economists? Well, there, yeah, I, I, you know, I'm not an unbiased witness here. Sure. Um, I think some of the, uh, you know, the prediction and the data analytics that economists do, that's, that's automatable. Um, but again, providing meaning to economic statistics and interpretation, those are, you know, that's, that's creative intelligence, that's social intelligence. Uh, those things technologies are not very good at and not likely to become very good at. So I think in that sense, we're safe. But again, even within uh, my own occupation, you know, we're going to need to, uh, to, to retask. Well, and I think that's kind of the interesting question is that it'll take away some of your more monotonous tasks, but you will be able to focus on other things. Do you think, though, that th- there's a risk that there is just going to be f- a f- need for fewer economists moving forward? Or is it just going to be everybody's jobs just kind of shift into different tasks throughout the day. Yeah, it's hard to say. I mean, yeah. we're, we're only looking here from a from a technical perspective. That's the limitation limitation of the, the the paper, and we're very clear on that. Um, you know, whether we need more demand for economists is going to depend on broader economic, social, regulatory challenges uh, that lie ahead. That's a that's a much broader broader question. Uh, if you had a crystal ball, you, you'd be a very rich man at this point. So I, I, I put you on the spot with that question. But uh, hey, David, thank you so much for joining us on the program. Thanks very much, Tom. And that's David Williams, Vice President of Policy at the Business Council of British Columbia. Stay with us, Laurie Sterrett. She is coming up next to talk about the Indigenous Women's Leadership Summit. And joining us today is Laurie Sterrett. She's partner at Leaders International. She's the founder of the Indigenous Women's Leadership Summit coming up November 15th to 17th in Ottawa and Gatineau. It's gathering women from across Canada to build networks of future business leaders. Laurie, thank you for joining us on the show. Well, thanks for having me. So this is being described as kind of the first conference of its kind. Tell me a little bit about what is the goal? What would you want to accomplish by bringing together lots of people, lots of speakers, and get them to start building these networks? Mm-hmm, sure. So the idea of this event came because that I, I was really at a stage where I could reflect on my own career path and some of the learning lessons that I've faced And unfortunately, I didn't ever have the instinct to ask for help when things got hard. So for some reason, I just kept plowing through on my own. And it was exhausting at times. So I've since learned that this is actually quite a common trait amongst Indigenous women. And we want to make a change. We want Indigenous women who lead at all levels to know that they're not alone, that they have a tremendous amount of support from like-minded, positive women across the country. Well, I ask you this because uh, it's curious, you, you use the word plowing through a, on your own. And I think that that's something I, I could have related to when I was younger. And, you know, you, you're mm-hmm. just getting into journalism, you, you do a lot of freelancing. And I, I think at a certain point, just through, you know, sheer logic, I, I realized I need to reach out to like other people within my own industry. It, it just came to be eventually, I never thought of it myself. Is this still kind of uh, something that you're building that the support network? Did you eventually be able to kind of cultivate something on your own? Or is this going to be helping you even further your own uh, network as it's uh, growing and growing? 
Well, absolutely. It, it is uh, a personal mission. It will improve my networks. But I actually, in my reflection, I realized that I have a tremendous network of mm. strong women across the country. In fact, last year around the, the holiday time in December, I was reaching out to people that I've known for decades. And I don't know why I, I didn't reach out to them before. But I was just calling them and saying, hey, what do you think of this idea? And every single person that I called or texted or emailed, every one of them said, oh, my goodness, we need to do this. We must. How can I help? And it's so traditional for an Indigenous woman to say, what can I do? What's my role? How can I pitch in here? Well, it's going to be kind of a big event. I was taking a look at the list of speakers that you have coming up here. Tell us a little bit about some of the stories that people can expect to hear if they're able to visit. Oh, yeah. It, it's uh, amazing. Uh, some of these women that have risen up to, you know, become a pilot and uh, an owner of an airline or an entrepreneur that has built a cosmetics company from scratch that is a social enterprise giving back to First Nations. Um, there's a heart surgeon. And, you know, the whole purpose here is that we we bring these stories to life from an Indigenous perspective. It's our own stories that we're telling ourselves. You know, there's a, a Mi'kmaq woman who owns two different construction companies and is building wind farms across rural Quebec. I mean, it doesn't get more innovative than that. So I, I really think it'll be a tremendous inspiration, not just for the younger set, but for anybody who's in the audience that, that you know, will be inspired maybe to take their next bold career move or to start that business that they've always wanted, or even for the younger people to stay in school. And, you know, what's the spark that, that inspires them to keep moving forward? I'm curious uh, from your perspective, and I, and I don't know if you have a, a solid thesis or maybe it's just your own opinion at this point, but why do you think there's been a bit of a reluctance? And maybe you can just ex speak to your own experience, but why has there been a reluctance so far to build these networks within the Indigenous women's communities? Well, firstly, I would say that most Indigenous women that are in a professional world or in a professional capacity, they're leading, say, at their community level or in a business, they generally wear many, many hats. It's very common to hear stories like, you know, uh, business and politics and family all very much being intertwined, especially if there's a deep connection mm -hmm. to the community. Uh, so I think it just is that we all, I mean, to, to say that we wear multiple hats is an understatement. So sometimes it's just hard. And I'm sure this is true for, for other women who are raising families and balancing careers. But uh, I think we just need to give a little nudge and help people know that there is support. There are people who are going through similar circumstances that can maybe give another perspective when you're going through something hard. And correct me if I'm wrong, I, your daughter, uh, she's deeply involved with the uh, coordination of the upcoming summit, correct? Absolutely. So doing this with my daughter makes perfect sense. Not only is she a professional event planner, but she's probably that, that generation of people that have heard from their mothers and their fathers that you can do anything. And you know, she was raised with that. And I, I think that it's, it's not 
been the norm for Indigenous women to know that there are a lot of possibilities, that, you know, that there are only barriers. And my daughter's been raised in a way to believe in herself and believe that anything is possible. And we really want to share that and inspire that in everything that we do in the summit, whether it's the the individual presentations or the panel discussions or the workshops that we're offering afterward. We just want every participant to see that anything is possible and within their reach. It sounds as if uh, you've been raising her in perhaps a bit of a different way than uh, how you grew up in, in uh, you know, when, in your youth. But So I'm curious, do you get a sense from her generation that things are starting to change? Do you think that a, a summit like this is kind of one of those signals that the next generation is going to have a bit of a leg up over a lot of the people and a lot of the struggles that went on in earlier generations then? Well, I I think that just depends, right? I I don't think that we have made a lot of headway when it comes to representation. Um, You know, it's really time for us to do something uh, about representation across corporate Canada um, to help people build their careers. Um, we know that Indigenous women are woefully underrepresented across corporate Canada. They're well below 1% representation in senior leaderships and board roles. So it's time for us to change the story about Indigenous women in Canada. And, and we have to make an intentional effort to uplift them to, you know, those people that are already leading, but you know, maybe try to take some of those barriers out of the way and maybe make some intentional efforts to increase uh, their representation uh, in important roles in companies. No, I think it's significant that you bring that up. I, I believe there was a report out last month from Minerva Canada, and they were talking about the lack of representation and how for both women as well as for people of color and Indigenous people here in Canada, that we're not really making headway, as you said before. Do you think that at a certain point, and we have seen it from the current government under Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, uh, stronger efforts at reconciliation, but do you think at a certain point that maybe government needs to step in a little bit more put more at least of these publicly traded companies on the spot and say, you know, you have to explain why representation isn't being fulfilled at this point. Yeah, I I can tell you that I've been in this field of inclusion and diversity in and around this conversation for well over 20 years. And it is a little bit sad when you reference the Minerva Foundation report. It's a bit sad that we haven't made more headway. And there's other reports, like from the Conference Board of Canada and the Canadian Board Diversity Council, uh, that say that we we really haven't made much uh, progress. But at the same time, I think you know every every professional environment is different, and I I think we have to be open to you know maybe it's target setting in one environment, but maybe it is you know just sort of more coaching and more. Uh, talent management and retention strategies that will help companies get closer and engaged with their Indigenous employees. I I really think uh, it has to be an intentional strategy, regardless of that environment. So, uh, Laurie, the the first summit that you guys are holding here, it's going to be in Ottawa and Gatineau. Uh, Let me ask you this. You're you're from BC. You you live here in BC. Can we expect maybe in future years we will get maybe another conference on the West Coast? Or does it just kind of make more sense just with regards to, you know, where everybody is spread out that, you know, why not have it in central Canada then? 
Yeah, you know, that's how we started. I really had a strong vision of attracting women from all parts of the country. That's totally coming true. There are women from every province and territory um, and from Nunavut, and it's uh, amazing to see. We we really did choose that central location, and we're already talking about where it might be next year. Um, we might come a little closer to the West Coast. We, we haven't fully decided, but we will poll our participants this year and find out where they'd like to be. I actually hear a lot that uh, people would like to make the trek from the East Coast to the West Coast at this time of year. You, you know, we get, get a little tired of the rain, but sometimes it's actually refreshing for those that are living in a colder climate. <laughs> I don't blame them. I, I think it was snowing in Calgary in like September. I don't blame them for wanting to take a bit of a <laughs> trek out here. So yeah, okay. <laughs> That's right. Excellent. Well, uh, Laurie, thank you so much. If anybody wants to find out more information about this summit, uh, where would be like the best place to go? Oh, thanks. Yes, I'd love for people to check out our website. It's www.iwls.ca, Indigenous Women's Leadership Summit. And registration is actually closing at the end of today. So I sure hope that people check it out and sign up. And for those other media outlets that want to tell some of these stories, you're welcome to attend and just let us know that you're coming. Well, excellent. Uh, Lori, thank you once again for joining us on the program. I really appreciate the time. Thanks so much, Tyler. That's Lori Sturrett. She is partner at Leaders International. She's also the founder of the upcoming Indigenous Women's Leadership Summit. That's on November 15th to 17th. And that's it for BIV today. We'll be back tomorrow. You can find our archives on iTunes or Stitcher. So tell your friends to subscribe. In the meantime, go to BIV.com for all of our news stories.